get your car washed because it's probably dirty right now. Whether it's you know washing all the germs out, you want to get obviously the germs out of your car, but also you want it to look really nice. Go to Tommy's Express Car Wash. It's wash, rinse, repeat with Tommy's. And guess what? They have an app. It's the Tommy Club app. So download it. I know you have a smartphone, so you're going to be able to download apps. You don't have a flip phone if you're listening to this podcast. I'm just assuming that. And if you do, more power to you. But if you do, then you're missing out on this great deal. Because if you download the Tommy Club app today, you're going to enjoy endless washing for one low price. Endless washing for one low price at Tommy's Express Car Wash. That's unlimited car washes, unlimited clean, shiny, and dry. Unlimited use of exclusive app lane at Tommy's. Unlimited access to all the Tommy's locations. And there are a lot of them. Unlimited guest service. Most importantly, unlimited happiness. That's a Tommy's Express Car Wash. Right, we got a lot of different things coming at you today, okay? And I'm just sensing a little bit of a lull right now. that. You don't got time for that. Right? Let's go. Break it. Break it. Let it cross. Woo! Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? I've just been handed an urgent and horrifying news story. And I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk with Derek Johnson on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Daniel Lynch, still a stud. Still wheeling and dealing since coming back. Again, against the Astros. And that was in a hitter's park. Really impressive stuff from Daniel Lynch. Continues to look like Daniel Lynch and Carlos Hernandez are going to be a really good one-two punch for the Royals. And if they're able to land somebody else in free agency, if you know they have another pitcher like Jackson Kowar come up and he starts to do what Daniel Lynch does in his second time up, all of a sudden you might have something there if you're the Kansas City Royals. They will be playing tomorrow during a day game. Tonight they play again at night at 7-10, pregame at 6-30. You can hear all of that right here on KLWN. The Pac-12, Big Ten, ACC alliance has officially been formed. Honestly, I don't even think it is official because it hasn't been signed upon. They're all just trusting each other, which, you know, that worked out great for the Big 12 with, hey, we trust you, Oklahoma and Texas, and they're gone. So this isn't like in writing, and maybe there's more to that, the reason why it's not a contract, because if this is about a voting block to be made by this alliance, you probably can't put in writing, hey, we'll just vote with each other no matter what, because that probably wouldn't look great for the SEC and these other conferences. I don't know if that would put you in any legal possibilities or whatnot, but the alliance is officially happening. It'll give them basically two things. The first is the big scheduling bump. The second is the voting block. As far as the scheduling bump goes, most teams right now have these games scheduled 10 years in advance that we always make fun of here about, you know, oh, Notre Dame is is playing Georgia in 2032. Awesome. Can't wait to put that one on my calendar 10 years down the road. So because of that, you don't really have the ability to squeeze out a bunch of open dates in your non-conference schedule. But the idea is that there will be a Pac-12 team playing a Big Ten school, a Pac-12 team playing an ACC school. So basically, you're getting two extra non-conference games against these other power opponents. And for some of these conferences, 
Like the Pac-12 plays nine conference games. The Big Ten plays nine conference games. There's talk of maybe dropping back down to eight because you're going to be playing two more power conference teams. And also it would open up a spot to play one of these games so you don't have to worry about if we scheduled all these games in 10 years in advance. So they'll work around that. But it creates more inventory with selling these media contracts because you have an extra marquee game, an extra big game on the schedule. They didn't announce how they're going to do it. They didn't announce if, hey, we'll have whoever wins the Big Ten the year before is going to play the winner of the Pac-12 the next year. So hypothetically coming into this year, Oregon won the Pac-12 last year. Ohio State won the Big Ten. You'd have Oregon and Ohio State, which they actually already are playing this year. But you would have it based on the merits there. You would have Clemson play Ohio State, Clemson play Oregon, as well as the other ones. I don't know if that's how they do it. But regardless, you're adding those games, and it adds a lot of value. It keeps each other kind of linked together, but it also adds basketball games as well. They're going to add early and mid-season games in women's and men's basketball, similar to how you have the Big 12 SEC showdown in basketball that occur at the end of January, and that's usually a pretty big day. ESPN televises all the games. They really prop it up. They advertise all the games being on for that day in the middle of the conference season kind of taking place then. And usually college game day is there for the big game of the day, whether it's Kansas and Kentucky or Tennessee and Baylor, whoever it happens to be for that specific day, it draws a lot of eyes. And that's what now these conferences are going to be able to do with these early and midseason games, specifically the midseason ones that, again, further add to the contract value with TV for the specific conferences, for the specific schools. But while the scheduling thing is a part of this, it's not the most important. The most important part of this alliance is it gives these conferences a voting block. This isn't a conference merger. This isn't something that makes the conferences one organization, but it, and it doesn't guarantee that they're going to think the same way. But in certain senses, it does give them a voting block on what they're thinking for anything between playoff expansion to anything just in the college athletic landscape in general. It's almost like you have a clique of friends who they're just always going to vote for each other because they're, they're trying to be friends with each other and that if one feels most passionate about something and the others are like, eh, whatever, then they'll just go that way. Again, nothing's in writing. And if the Pac-12 thinks something they're voting on is going to be more beneficial to them and the Big Ten doesn't think it's beneficial to them, then I don't think it's a voting block. But in certain things, certain areas of college sports where the SEC maybe has gained so much power or the SEC might want something, now they're going to be able to essentially block what the SEC would want to do. For instance, the playoff expansion. If these other conferences are saying, hey, we don't like the fact that with like we want playoff expansion, maybe the SEC doesn't anymore, or maybe we do want playoff expansion, but we want a different format because the SEC was championing this current format that we're talking about with six, the top six conference winners and then six at-large teams, and they're just going to get all the at-large teams. So we, because we have the majority of the voting block, or we have a big number of the voting block, we're going to be able to say, nope, you know what, we're going to expand only eight teams. And we're going to have all six, you know, five conference winners and one group of five. And that way you're getting even less at-large 
teams, SEC, sorry, or we're going to do 12, but we're going to have, you know, multiple group of five champions in there, and it's going to lessen your ability to get at large teams in. There are ways that you can kind of mess with the SEC in that certain regard. They mentioned their like-mindedness in continuing to prioritize broad sports offerings and that the academic profile matters and that ESPN is controlling and dictating too much of the sport. That's all true, but the ironic part of it is that if Texas and Oklahoma would have offered to join the Big Ten or the ACC or the Pac-12, those leagues would be in the same situation. Uh, But this is from Brian Fisher of The Athletic. This is what the voting block now gives them in terms of the different big committees in the NCAA. For the college football playoff, this would give them four of the 11 members in the playoff committee. So you have extra sway into, well, no, we're not going to give it just to the second SEC team gets that fourth spot now. Let's value the conference champion. You also have the NCAA Constitutional Committee. It's 3 of 28, a little smaller there. Of the D1 Council, 3 of 40. Again, a little smaller there, but bigger than a 1 for the SEC. Um, The NCAA Autonomy 5, they have 3 of 5, 41 of 65. Of FBS teams, you have 41 of 130. So over a third of it. And of Division 1, when you include the basketball schools and such, 41 of 351. It just gives you a lot of power. It gives you a lot of numbers and a lot of ability to almost stuff the ballot box, so to speak. And honestly, at the end of the day, this alliance doesn't mean a whole lot, especially without contracts outside of the voting on a few things here or there, like the playoff expansion and a scheduling bump. But it's not this like overwhelming change to the college landscape as if this is a merger. It's not a huge deal. But specifically for this area, this is bad news, I would say, for the Big 12. More irony here, this is from what Jim Phillips said. He's the ACC commissioner. Quote, we want and need the Big 12 to be well. The Big 12 matters in college athletics. This group will do everything it can to make sure college athletics looks similar to what it is today. Very ironic there. On one hand, not a great sign in terms of at least from just what it's said, from them being willing to take on Big 12 schools into their league. If they're saying we want and need the Big 12 to be well, they're not going to poach the Big 12 schools. Is that them just saying that over these next couple years because they know they're trying to keep Texas and Oklahoma in the league, and then once 2025 comes and the Big 12 has to let Texas and Oklahoma out, then all of a sudden at that point are you basically saying, okay, now we'll poach you? I don't know. Or maybe it's just saying that in the public and it's just kind of fodder instead. But if that is to be believed as truth, that wouldn't be great for Big 12 teams at least landing in the ACC. But because they're in an alliance and this seems to be a shared sentiment, that wouldn't be great news to getting in other leagues because they're saying, no, we want the Big 12 to stick together. But that's also kind of messed up. And this is the ironic part of it for this alliance to basically be like, yeah, the Big 12, we know you guys are kind of screwed right now. But we want you to try your hardest to stick together. We're not going to do anything about it. You know, it's like basically saying like, oh, Texas and Oklahoma left. You lost your arms and legs. Your arms and legs got cut off in a tragic accident. And you know what? Us as the alliance, I'm not going to take you to the hospital. Like, I'm not going to drive you there. I don't want you getting blood on my upholstery in my car. You just had your arms and legs cut off. But I'm rooting for you. I'm hoping you can make it. So, Good for you. You can do it. 
that's kind of the ironic part of it. It's like, yeah, we want you to do well. We need you to stay together and stay well. But at the end of the day, they're not going to be able to stay together, stay well because of the lack of money. You're basically going to be a group of five at that point unless these schools go to other leagues or if they can poach from other conferences. So it's kind of ironic there. And you can't even get the added value of adding a good non-con game because they weren't included in this alliance to say, hey, Big 12, yeah, you'll be part of our voting block. You'll also be part of our alliance where we'll give you some scheduled games that'll help you stay afloat and stay as a conference. Not even doing that. And beyond the financial aspect, the lack of league interest, marquee non-con matchups and opportunities to, to strengthen your resume for the college football playoff and whatnot, you're going to be taking a big hit if you're the Big 12. I think it also probably puts you in a further bind if you're the Big 12 of what decision you want to make from here. Now you have one less life raft, so to speak, of a conference reaching out to you and saying, yeah, we'll have a scheduling alliance where even though you're losing Texas and Oklahoma, your value is going to drop in the conference. You'll make up some value in adding an extra non-conference game, a marquee game, where we're going to play Oklahoma State and Oregon and TCU and USC and all these games that are going to help you in your next TV deal that'll help your conference stay together because you're making a more decent amount of money. But now that that's not even on the table, if you want to have long-term stability, you need to add more teams from the AAC or other leagues. Counterpoint to that, if you don't care about the long-term stability, which you might not, this might be all about the near term for sticking together for the next four years just to rack up all the money when Texas and Oklahoma are either in the conference or having to pay their buyout. So you just deal with that now and then you work on the long term for when that year comes up and you move leagues from there. But the downside to adding teams is that there's more teams. Everybody gets a smaller slice of the pie. Everybody's earning less money. That's the conundrum you're in. So these other conferences saying we want the Big 12 to stick around they're important for the landscape of college. Well, for the Big 12 to stick around long term, you need to add more teams. But that also hurts you in the short term because you're going to be making a lot less money per school. So what do you do there? And so from falling behind these other leagues, it is clear they need to add more teams, even though individual schools who still might wanting to be leave uh, to, to leave the conference wouldn't want that since they don't care about the long term stability. Right. And I, I don't know where Kansas sits. Certainly. You would think if Kansas gets offered by the Big Ten and ACC, they would absolutely take it. But what if, you know, Kansas is sitting here saying, hey, we do want to take this, and then the Big 12 comes and says, hey, we're going to add four teams. Now you're going to be extra mad if you're Kansas because you're going to be losing money in the near term while you're trying to get out of the Big 12. Anyway, in regards to that, I think it just further adds to the idea that yeah, the Big 12 continues to be a, sh uh, a sinking ship, and you need to get off that sinking ship. But here is a good rumor that could possibly be good for KU. This is Dave Wanstead, who is the former Pittsburgh coach and Miami Dolphins coach. Or is he just a coordinator? I can't remember under uh, Nick Saban. Uh, former coach, football coach, and has worked with Fox, so you would think, on one hand. You know, he's he's hearing people from from people at Fox who have a big hand in this, as does ESPN. But he was also at some meetings, and this is what he had to say. 
I was at the Fox meetings in L.A., or I'm sorry, in Phoenix uh, a week ago, and we were talking, and a lot of the Big Ten people were all there. Yeah. And it sounds like the Big 12, and you hit it, Molly, right on the head. The, the Big 12, we know that Oklahoma and Texas are gone. And for any of our listeners, you know, it's, it sounds like Oklahoma State and Kansas State are going to the Pac-12. So that's done. It sounds like West Virginia is going to end up in the ACC, which would make sense with Virginia, Pitt, everybody yep. there. And it's, it sounds like um, uh, but, but Iowa State and Kansas are going to join. They're the two schools that are going to probably join the Big Ten here locally. Wow. Okay, so again, take this with a grain of salt. It's just Dave Wanstep, but also he is at a prominent network who would be hearing a lot of this stuff. And that was on 670, the score in Chicago, by the way. The The thing that makes this really weird is, like, I don't, I don't doubt the viability of if Kansas State could go to the Pac-12 in terms of what their value to the conference would, would possibly be. And you, you have a team close to Colorado and stuff that, that's good in football and whatnot. What I find odd is everything you've heard from Gene Taylor, the Kansas State AD, makes you think that he's a proponent of wanting to stick in the Big 12 and wanting the conference to build up on itself. So to hear that rumor is kind of weird because it's it's counterintuitive to that, but, but who knows because there are a lot of reasons to come out and say certain things to try to drive whatever your motive is. But that would obviously be a good rumor for KU if they could end up in the Big 12 or Big 10, excuse me. But again, take it with a grain of salt. We are going to hear Pac-12 commissioner George Klyovkov. He told The Athletic that they are going to announce their decision about whether or not to expand before the end of the week. I would just imagine that they're not going to expand, and that's going to be the ruling of that. But if they do come out and say we are going to expand, then all of a sudden this thing's going to feel like the circus over the next couple weeks. But my guess, again, right before the start of the college season, they'll probably come out and say, we're not going to expand. It'll be something we're going to look at down the line. That's my guess. All right, this is Rock Jock Sports Talk. Matt Tate of the Lawrence Journal World, KUSports.com. Joins us in about 20 minutes. Kevin Flaherty at 440. This is Rock Jock Sports Talk. I'm Derek Johnson on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Depend on it. About 20 till the top of the hour. This is Rock Jock Sports Talk. I'm Derek Johnson on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. We got to hear from Lance Leipold earlier today. We'll play that audio in the 4 o'clock hour. I was just talking about how I thought it was kind of funny how he is like a master of dodging anything that's going to give anything away. Like he he knows all the secrets, Matt, and we didn't get to learn anything about the quarterbacks. So I guess we're just going to have to to guess here on on throughout the day and, and throughout the coming weeks um, leading up to the start of the season for KU. So I have a fun exercise. We got Matt Tate, Lawrence Journal World, KUSports.com with us to kind of diagnose the KU quarterbacks. And we're going to go through these one by one. Are you game for this? I like fun exercises. You okay. betcha. Well, it might be fun for me, not fun for you. I don't know. I don't know. Oh, good. Yeah, everything's <laughs> fun for me, Derek. Even the worst days are fun days. Love so, it. yeah, let's do it. I'm ready to hear it. All right. Strongest arm of KU quarterbacks. Jalen Daniels. Agreed. Do I have to elaborate or you just want an answer? Well, I mean, you can elaborate. It's, it's you know, it's your time. You do what you want to do, man. 
Um, <laughs> I, I think that's the answer. I don't even think it's particularly close. Uh, you know, I don't know a ton about Bean's arm strength, but I know, you know, he, he he's more known for his speed and ability to run. And, and Jalen can freaking sling it, man. I mean, he can, if he gets the time to set his feet and, and unload, I mean, that, that ball will fly. He can, he can throw it down the field. Um, accuracy is a different story, but, um, you know, that's, that's, that's something that, that is all about giving him the time to use the big arm, and, and uh, that, that could certainly factor into the race here. Okay, I agree with you there. Most accurate. Most accurate. Holy cow, man. Um, it, I don't think I'll say Jalen because I think that's one of the biggest things he's had to work on uh, in the offseason and continues to, to need to work on as, as camp comes to a close here and the season, uh, you know, gets started. Um, Gosh, you know what? I mean, I don't think Miles Kendrick is overly accurate. Um, I think if he were, we would have seen him play a lot more over the past couple of years. Um, he has been out there, but but I don't think it's been like uh, accuracy and, and him just putting the ball where it needs to be every time he's on the field is uh, is the reason he's been out there. It's almost more often than not been by default, right? Because they had to put someone out there or someone was hurt or he needed a, a chance because it wasn't working out or whatever the case is. So um, sight unseen, I'm going to say Jason Bean is the most mm. accurate of the three. And that's super weird for me to do because I've only seen him throw a handful of times out at those practices that we've gotten to go to. Um, but but that's, that's probably where I would put that answer right now. Yeah, I, I don't really think that that's one where it's it's kind of just splitting hairs and and not necessarily for the best way. Okay, uh, best runner. This is Jason Bean, right? Yeah, yeah, but don't but don't overlook Jalen. I mean, really, yeah. he, he's he's able to move and and not afraid to run and take off and and take hits as we've seen, you know. So I think Bean's faster and and, and you know his ability to to run tall and and kind of his vision as as a taller quarterback helps him helps him maybe avoid some of those hits and and get down the field and make some plays with his legs but i, I think jalen can move and i think he can run it's just, it's just uh it, it's it's a little different between the two least turnover prone least turnover prone yes yeah, so a guy least likely to turn it over sure uh, you know, I, I think probably Kendrick would be the answer, but you know his his numbers don't show that that's absolutely the case. Um, I think he had maybe six and five, six touchdowns, five interceptions. Yeah, he actually had more interceptions. I I don't know about the fumble numbers. I can never like find those online. It was pretty close. Yeah, I looked that up the other day too, and I I think they maybe both had four and one loss, something like that. It wasn't. Okay. It wasn't outrageous, but it wasn't a huge. It wasn't a huge uh, advantage either way. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I, I think everybody thinks Miles Kendrick is a game manager and because he doesn't have the big arm, he's accurate because he doesn't have the big arm. He's not going to make mistakes, but sometimes not having a big arm is going to get you picked off, uh, even on intermediate type routes, you know? So I, I don't, I don't want to say, um, I don't want to say Kendrick with that answer, least turnover prone sight unseen. Jason Bean love is it. what I'm going to say. <laughs> Well, I mean, you do have like actual statistic proof of of that one because Bean had five interceptions in more playing time than a guy like Miles Kendrick, and that that's what I'm kind of interested with here is that I think it's just easy to think of Miles Kendrick, like you said, as the game manager, but Jalen Daniels threw one less interception than Miles Kendrick, and he threw 32 more passes last year, so it's right. not like 
that's a, a done deal for sure thing there. Okay, uh, most experienced. You could go multiple ways with this. Playing time-wise, I guess it might be Jason Bean, but in terms of seniority, it would be Miles Kendrick. Who do you value as the most experienced? Well, I think it's Bean. I think he's had um, opportunities as the guy um, more than either of those other two. Um, I think that there's value in that, knowing it's it's your show, knowing you're your team's quarterback. And, and while Daniels has known that, you know, in spot time and, and, and Kendrick's had that feeling uh, as mostly a backup throughout his career, Again, it's usually been something happened that they had to put him out there. So I don't, I don't think his experience is is, is quite the same. So I, I think it's been um, just simply because he's known what it's like to go into a season as a starter, and those other two guys haven't. Um, I mean, Jalen got thrown out there early last year, but he wasn't the starter going into the season. So um, I think that that's a that's an advantage for Bean too, right there for sure. Best leader. Best leader, um, I, I like Jalen's leadership style because I think he, he leads by example. He's very likable. He's the kind of kind of kid that's going to go get himself crushed and hop right up, and, and I think his teammates you know, respect and, and kind of uh, gravitate toward that. There's a lot of, there's a lot of appreciation for, for a kid who's so visibly going to be willing to, to hang it out there and, and leave it on the line and know he could – you know, take a monster hit, but he's willing to try to do that to get his other yard or two. So um, I, I really like that part of him. He's got great charisma. He's got a great personality. But I think when I, when I think of leadership, and, and, and I've seen this from, from Kendrick a lot more this, this camp than I have in the past, I mean, I think there's a quiet nature that comes with leadership. And I, I think this is a, this is a guy that that really is is a lot more mature than a lot of those guys, um, both at the quarterback room and on the team in general. And and I think Kendrick's proven over his career here that that he's willing to uh, to do whatever is asked and, and take whatever role. So I think that there's some some leadership traits in that too. I mean, it's really it's really hard to be a good leader when you're a backup, but it's also um, it's also pretty admirable when you're willing to still stick your nose in there and hold guys accountable and help teach guys and things like that. So it, it's close between those two. Don't know enough about Bean yet. Um, I know he's, he's still acclimating himself to the roster and to the surroundings and all that stuff, and so I think it'd be hard for him to, to win that question just yet. But, um, but it's close between – between Bean and I'm sorry, between Jalen and, and Kendrick, just because um, they both have leadership traits, um, they're just different. The ones that Miles has are totally different than the ones that Jalen has, and vice versa. So I don't know if I can say Ty. If I can't say Ty, I think I would probably lean toward Kendrick there. But um, but if I can say Ty, I, I like the Ty there because I think they both offer something different as leaders. Yeah, we can call it Ty. All right, this is the last one, and then I'll get to the point of all this. The highest potential. Jeez, that one's tough. Um, that one's really tough. I, I really still, I really still, gosh, that's tough. <laughs> I tried to answer it twice and I failed. Um, <laughs> the, the highest potential. You can call Ty I mean, again if you want. Yeah, I don't. I don't think I need to. I, I mean, I, th- I again. I really. I'm a big fan of Jalen Daniels. I think he's a terrific kid. I think he's a terrific competitor. I think he has talent. Um, but but you know, he's not the tallest dude 
and and his accuracy is definitely a question. So I, I think that I would have to lean toward. And then with with Kendrick, he is what he is. I mean, he's the safe choice right now. He's he he's a guy that we've seen enough from. I think that unless he got a lot lot better. We know what he is, and, and, and what he is is probably not quite good enough, frankly. Um, so I think the highest potential, just because of his his ability to make plays with his legs, is, is a guy like Jason Bean. I mean, I think that, you know, I don't know much about his arm and his accuracy and those things because, again, sight unseen so far. But um, but I think there's a lot to like about a guy who can who can be another threat and put pressure on a defense with – with an additional, you know, uh, skill set rather than just dropping back and throwing passes. So um, I, I think Bean's the kind of guy that if he could get the opportunity and if he wins the job, and it's not just handed to him, but he wins the job and he feels comfortable, I, I think his his numbers could be as good as we've seen from a KU quarterback in a, in a long time um, simply because, you know, you look at total yardage, and and total touchdowns and you know maybe thinking about him throwing a few and running a few and that kind of thing i i, I think his potentials potentials really big um but i think jalen's really close too i, I think jalen's got that it factor that quarterbacks need um again he's likable he's the kind of guy that, that teammates are going to love and 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 you know want to want to play for and, and fight for and battle with and all that stuff so um i, I think he has a he has a bright future we just have to remember how young he is. Uh, I think that's that's really important, you know, just because he's not winning all these answers right now. He could still be a three-year starter at Kansas down the road. Maybe last year was a throw-him-into-the-fire type of year, and, and, and maybe this year is more of a learning year under quote-unquote more normal circumstances. But even if that's the case, he emerges into, you know, the start of next season as a guy who – would have some experience then and have learned and grown and, and, you know, he could still be a three-year starter. So there's nothing, there's nothing not to like about his future. Um, it's just a question of is the future now, and, and we don't know that until we get these guys out there and, and see who can handle today. But, but I think Bean's probably the most potential um, just because of that dual threat nature. Okay, so the whole point of me asking these questions, um, among these I asked you seven different superlatives of the seven. And I think that covers most of the, the QB play. Jason mm-hmm. Bean scored four points. Jalen Daniels scored two and a half. Miles Kendrick scored just a half. And yet, I feel like Miles Kendrick is going to be the week one starter. I know a lot of people have had that thought. I, I don't know if I've straight up asked you who you think is going to be the starter yet. But why is that? Why are we talking about if there's that big of a discrepancy in everything we just went over categorically? Like, why? why is it? that a lot of people are seeing this just as Miles Kendrick, including myself. Such an awesome question, and that's a good exercise. Um, it, it, it really does it really does sort of present it in a different light because I agree. I, I don't I don't know that I'm ready to say he's going to be the week one starter. I think I think someone else will. Um, but I think over the last week to ten days, it's definitely been been fair to to do exactly what you've done and that's read into the situation and kind of feel like Kendrick might be in the lead um but but I think the fact that they're going to let this thing go all the way to the end I mean they're going to let it play out the rest of this week uh I, I feel like next week it'll still be unsettled and and you know it'll be about who has the best week of preparation um and so the fact that that's number one uh excuse me the fact that that's the case 
I think number one that tells you that there's more time still for for uh, Bean or or Jalen Daniels to to go out and put enough on tape and and show him enough to to say hey okay I'm your guy that's that's number one number two I think that because he's more mature because he's kind of a known commodity because you kind of know what you're going to get with Miles Kendrick. I think if that was what they were looking for, they might have already announced it. They might have already said, hey, that okay, let's just make it easy on everybody. That's the guy. And they haven't done that. Now, there could be competitive advantage there. Um, they may just not know. And, and I think everything's, everything's in play at this point. But I think that the fact that, that, that it's still ongoing and, and they're still battling it out, at least to me, tells you that, that, that it's probably going to be one of those two other guys. Now, um, I, I, think, I think Miles Kendrick's a, a, a good dude, and I think he's a, a tough guy, and I think he's, a, he's got some ability and he's got some skills that, you know, that can be beneficial and can be helpful to, a, to an offense. But at the same time, I think, like I said a minute ago, you just kind of know what he is. And I think what he is is a pretty darn good backup, a good safety net, a reliable guy that you know is going to stay ready, you know is going to be um, you know, studying throughout the week, isn't, isn't going to say, well, to hell with it, I'm not playing, I'm not going to be prepared. I mean, he's going to be a pro. He's going to be a guy that's on top of things. And, and that's a nice thing to have as a, a second string or a backup type of player because you feel good about it. Hey, if we got to go there, we know that guy's going to be ready, and that's not a knock on the other two guys. I don't, you know, we haven't seen him enough to know whether that's the case. But I just think over his career, Kendrick's proven that's kind of who he is. And so, um, could he be the guy that fits for now? Sure. Um, maybe he fits this offense perfectly, and and if he does, that's going to give him a a really good opportunity. I would imagine. Um, the thing that keeps sticking with me, and I'm sure this is probably something that that factored into your thinking and and the whole bit is is what the offensive coordinator said Kodal Nicky um where they you know he talked about and we I think we talked about this last week but where he talked about looking for consistently good play not occasionally great to me that points to Miles Kendrick you know I mean those other two guys have the ability to flash those other two guys have the ability to to make a great play or a great throw or a, you know to put up some big moments but can they be consistently good if the answer is yes if either one of Bean or Daniels over the last, you know, two weeks of camp, heading into next week even, can can find that consistency that this coaching staff has been preaching, then I think that's your guy. If it continues to be occasionally great with them, um, again, I, I haven't heard that's who they're talking about, but but let's assume that for this conversation. If it's occasionally great, but but Kendrick's more consistently good, then I think there's your answer. So it, it's it's all of that is kind of part of the reason that this thing – I think it's still undecided, and and for once, I think that's okay. I mean, I think that this is a coaching staff that that came in, you know, from 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 a really uh, behind position, right? They're not they're not taking over at the normal time. They didn't have spring. They barely knew these guys until four weeks ago, you know. So I mean, I think that why wouldn't they take as much time as given to them? It's not it's not that old coaching gimmick thing where you're just trying to play it cute and keep the other team from knowing who your guy's going to be. I don't think that's the case at all here. I think this is a case of 
of a coaching staff truly using every single day or hour of, of evaluation at their disposal to try to make the best decision they can. And so why, why end it early when you still have more days ahead of you? Yeah, I agree with you. I, I think that happened a lot under David Beatty where they viewed it as like a yep. tactical advantage. And it was like, come on, you're playing an FCS team. It shouldn't matter which of the quarterbacks you play. You should win this game. I, I agree with you. This is, I mean, they saw these quarterbacks throw for the first time in person, what, three weeks ago? So, of course, it's going to take its time this time. I don't I don't think you should hold this against them like it's, oh, here we go again. You know, I, I think it's just no, 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 right. Situation. Not at all. I agree. And I, I think that's true. I think that's a very good point you bring up. And I think it's true that, that I mean, I think that's true across the board. Like, I, I think KU fans particularly are, are, are a little bit predisposed to just throwing in the towel when they you know, first guy jumps off sides or false start, and it's like, crap, here we go again. This sucks. Totally understand it, man. It's been a rough decade. But I think with this coaching staff, with this group, with the culture they're trying to put in, even if you see some of that on September 3rd against South Dakota, I, I, I would advise you to just hang in there and, and power through it and, and, and try not to let yourself go there. Try not to think, here we go again. Because everything else about what they've done – since Lance Leipold was hired, points to me anyway as something totally different. And it has a different feel. It has a better feel. It, it seems like something real is being built here. So give them a few weeks. Give them some time. Yeah, guys are going to make mistakes. Ideally, you won't see any or you won't see as many under a Lance Leipold team as you saw under Les Miles and David Beatty and Charlie Weiss and blah, 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 right? But, but mistakes happen. And so instead of just saying, here it is again, the same old crap, um, you know, hang in there and, and see if, if they do get better. And, and maybe they'll get better from quarter to quarter and within the same game. I mean, that, that would be a sight. That would be something positive. But, but even if it's not, you know, see what game two looks like compared to game one, because this, this is a no-nonsense coaching staff. This is a group that, that demands that things are executed at a high level, um, and, and, and they hold people accountable, and, and they expect you know, guys to do what they're told to do. And, and so I, I think that will be reflected in their play. And, and if it's not game one, I think you have to remember that, that game one is game one, and there's jitters and all those things. So um, let's see what it looks like over the first maybe three or four weeks. And, and, and if it still looks sloppy and there's still problems week four, then go rake your leaves. I understand. I mean, that's, that's you know, we've been there before. But, but I really, you know, I've been around it a long time, and, and I, I just I do get a different feel from this group. And, and, and that's a lot to do with, with Lance Leipold and, and the fact that he does it a certain way. And everywhere he's done it, it's, it's proven to work. He is Matt Tate. You can check out all his work in the Lawrence Journal world, KUSports.com. Matt, thank you so much for the time, and talk to you next week. Sounds good, Derek. Thanks for the fun exercise. I so it was fun. It. You it thought it was really fun. really brightened my day. Awesome. It did, and, 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 and I owe you one. So I'll try to, I'll try to be <laughs> sharp next week, too. I right, love it. That's Matt Tate, Lawrence Journal world, KUSports.com. One hour down, two to go. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Depend on it. So we did a more macro version of the running back preview in the three o'clock hour, but I want to kind of look at each of the individual guys in this running back room. Now, certainly, especially at this position, when we're talking about the quarterbacks, right, you're only going to play one guy in a specific play and you might bring on another guy if he's not doing well, or you might have like a specific package. Like, I don't know if they're going to do that with 
Jason Bean, for instance, where you have a running quarterback, so you take advantage of his skill set in a certain formation. Um, you don't really have the issue with quarterbacks of saying, well, like receivers, we need eight guys because all eight of them are going to play. Maybe not as much as the top guy compared to the eighth guy, but he's still going to rotate in. He's going to play special teams. He's going to find his way on the field if they're running you know, a four-wide receiver set for a couple plays and some of your starters are tires, tired. You don't have that with the quarterbacks. And so with the running backs, you kind of do have that, right? Like there is a scenario where the fifth-string running back at some point over the course of the season receives a couple carries. He's not the feature guy, but – if, you know, you have your two guys in front of him who are injured and then all of a sudden he's the third string that day and the first two guys are tired after a couple plays, now all of a sudden maybe he's getting a play or two, a snap or two. But I don't really want to go that far on the running back depth chart, especially when you have what seems to me like a pretty clear four guys who could be fixtures in the rotation at that running back room. The first is Velton Gardner, and I don't know if he's considered the favorite to eventually earn the starting job because he is the most experienced. He is the upperclassman of the group, um, played in 2019 as a freshman. We saw him when mainly Khalil Herbert transferred away and he became Puka Williams' backup and impressed at certain times, averaged over five yards a carry, didn't get a ton of carries, but had some nice flashes. And then last year, as a sophomore, had to deal with some injuries. But in the six games he did play, Ended up with 72 carries, and some of these are even splitting time with Puka Williams. So that's about 12 carries a game. Give you 325 yards, four and a half yards per carry. So on average, you know, he's giving you over 50 yards per game. If he does that, I think you'd call it a really successful season. If you get 12 games of a healthy Velton Gardner and he's giving you over 600 yards, he's giving you a handful of touchdowns, that's a good thing. That's, that's a really good year. For a guy that, you know, this isn't just a one workhorse back situation where you say, yeah, that the lead guy has to average 1,000 yards or 1,200 yards or whatever for KU to be successful offensively. The fact that you have four guys is going to allow those stats to kind of be dispersed out. But he's been a good running back, and I feel like he's been a little bit lost in the shuffle just because he did have the injuries. And you do see the late seasons from a guy like Amori Pesek-Hickson who really came on and you have all the hype of a young freshman coming in and a guy like Devin Neal. But do not forget about Velton Gardner. He will play a key role in this offense, especially with his ability to just bust things loose in the open field. He has so much speed. Like, like I don't know, top-end speed, acceleration. Devin Neal might be faster than Velton Gardner, but just in terms of like shiftiness, agility, quickness, I think Velton Gardner might have him there. So you have different uses that you can use both guys. As far as Devin Neal, yeah, he's going to get a lot of playing time. And is it going to be as the starting running back? I don't know. But he is definitely going to get carries as a part of this offense. He has so much speed on the outside, has really good vision. I think he has pretty solid power. It's not as much as maybe a guy like Daniel Hyshaw or Amori Pesta kicks in, but Certainly, he is a guy that does a lot of things well, and even though he is just a freshman, the running back position is definitely one that you say, well, maybe it's a little easier to pick up right away than for like a freshman quarterback, for instance. Here is Lance Leipold, what he had to say about the young freshman, Devin Neal. What an outstanding young man Devin Neal is. He works hard every day, takes coaching. You know, you know there's times now where... You know, we talk about it, not going to let him, not going to back down on him either. But, you know, freshmen hit a wall at certain times. Uh, but, man, he's taking a lot of reps and, you know, and he's not tapping out. And, uh, you know, he's 
some days there's some really good flashes of what his future is going to be and then there's times you know there's a little bit of hesitancy in that but he's learning and he's a sponge and that's that's the thing I love about him he takes coaching he's not defensive he doesn't have it you know when something's not there he doesn't have 15 reasons why he did what he did he takes it and then he goes over and finds another way to get done you know right now is you know again where we're at in health and all those things but uh yeah, I, I see. I see Devin Neal playing a lot of football in, in some capacity uh, this season. Yeah, he's he's going to get playing time. It, it does remind me a little bit the way this is kind of being treated coming into it, and it's unfair to make this comparison. And, and just in terms of the player, I, I don't mean it like that. But it felt like Puka Williams' freshman year. It felt like there was you know a lot of buzz around. Oh, this guy's a really good high school player, really good recruit coming into your program. And it was like, okay, well, that first week of the season, are we going to see him? And I, I can't remember. He ended up not playing in that Nichols State game. I, I forget the reason why. But he was a guy who, it wasn't quite under wraps, but it definitely wasn't this overwhelming hype of, oh, he's going to be the star of the team right off the bat. He's going to be a starting running back right off the bat. It feels like we're going that way with Devin Neal. You have this really good talent and a player that, by all accounts, into what the staff did at Buffalo it seems like he would be the perfect type of running back. And so I could really see a situation where Devin Neal gives you five, seven carries in the first game against South Dakota, maybe gives you seven or eight against Coastal Carolina. All of a sudden, by like week three or week four, it's like, okay, this guy's the dude. This guy is going to be our lead back. And again, with four guys in the room, I don't think there's going to be one dominant guy who's giving you 20, 25 carries in a game, but the guy who's leading, maybe getting 15 carries a game with some of the other ones spread out to the other guys got to catch up with Devin Neal as well at KU football media days the former Lawrence High chesty lion interesting guy likes to read likes to draw here's the conversation with Devin first year here at Kansas how have you been uh, adjusting so far to being in the same city but now attending the university here instead of high school you know, you'd probably believe it's crazy, but um, I've only experienced probably about 0.5% of the campus, so it's kind of still new to me. Um, but it's definitely it's definitely awesome feeling being in my hometown playing here. Um, I've just adjusted by leaning on the other people around me, using the support staff and using the other people that have been here. Um, they've just been a helping hand for me, and especially when it comes to just on the field, but not just on the field, off the field as well. You're center fielder in baseball, so obviously you got to have a good arm to play center field. Have you been campaigning at all for any, uh, you know, wildcat plays or maybe halfback throws out of the backfield? Uh, Coach K has not trusted me with that yet, so uh, no throwing yet. <laughs> have you been trying, though? Uh, no, not at all. <laughs> okay. Uh, do you have a favorite play to run or a favorite side of the field to run? Um, not necessarily. Um, I just like the entire offense. It's pretty dynamic, and I think it helps. And with all the running backs, we all have our, each of our strengths with each of the plays, so... Uh, there's not a really specific favorite play I have. What would you say your strength is? Um, I think I like to use my speed and my uh, quick burst. Um, that's one of my things. Um, just using that and you know stretching the field and then bursting out of it, like trying to get upfield is a strong suit of mine. Mm -hmm. Is there a big competition between the guys? I know you're one of them to run the fastest on the team. Uh, not really, honestly. Okay. I mean. You just know who's fast and who's not, honestly. But mo but if I'm going to be completely honest, almost everyone on the team is really fast. So uh, not really a competition, but we like to just keep bigger, faster, stronger each and every day. We've heard a lot about like the zone blocking scheme being instituted with Lance Lightbolt here. Is that different at all than what you did in high school or, or yeah. what was Rampy doing? Um, it is pretty different. Um, in high school, we ran more power. 
So instead of more zone blocking schemes, it was man. Um, so yeah, it's a little bit different in that aspect, but from my read standpoint, it doesn't really change much. Okay. Funniest uh, player in the running back room? Mm. I'd probably say Daniel Highshaw or Belton. Those dudes are really funny. Okay. Um, who is the strongest running back? Ooh. I don't know. I think we each have our own really strong lift, so I think we're all up there close to each other. Who's the best pass-catching running back? Hmm. I don't know. I think we're pretty even on that aspect as well. Favorite hobby outside of football? Mm, I really like to draw and read. Yeah. I like to read. Okay. I've start. I've actually. I've actually started to pick up reading. I didn't used to like reading. Mm-hmm. Now I do. So. It's a lot different when you're not reading what's assigned to you in high school, right? Oh yeah. <laughs> when you actually get to choose what you want to read, it's a lot better. Do you have a favorite book, or what are you reading right now? Um, I'm just reading a lot of books on leadership mm-hmm. and like mental preparation. Mm-hmm. So those are those are kind of my alley i don't really have a specific favorite as far as drawing do you like to draw like fictional stuff do you like to draw like real portraits is there something specific yeah it's mainly fictional yeah yeah is there anything specific it's honestly what just comes to my head it's really and i really only draw when i'm bored and i'm not really (laughs) bored very often so (laughs) do you think that creativity helps you as a running back where you can be creative with your moves i mean i've never really thought of it like that but you know maybe that does help i'm not sure honestly there we go all right that was Devin neal so uh, interesting guy, and yeah, just a freshman. I could really see his season starting to take off the the longer it goes along, as you can for a lot of the young guys. The other two in the running back room, Amori Pesic Hickson had a really good game um, in one of the four that he played in. He against TCU toward the end of the season had 22 carries for 100 yards in the game. That's four and a half yards per carry. He also did well against Oklahoma, and that was a good Oklahoma defense last year. Ten carries for 43 yards in that game. You look at the total season stats, ends up at 3.6 yards per carry with 40 for 145, but that's pretty much just because the sample size was smaller. He had those two good games and then just had one game where he had seven carries for two yards against Texas Tech and what was a slog of an offensive game there. But this is a guy who, you know, we've talked about the different traits. With Felton Gardner, you not only have the speed, but you – have the kind of big jukes, the agility, the quickness in a get-out-of-a-phone-booth tackle type of guy. With Devin Neal, you have the long-term acceleration. You have the ability to get to your top-end speed at a quick amount of time. With Amori Pesic-Hickson, you have the kind of slashing running back who has good size, six foot two thirty. He's almost like a fullback in terms of size, but he can get up to a pretty good top end speed as well. And we've seen him have, uh, you know, a, a guy who can have like a high vertical. He's had over like a forty inch vertical. A guy who was former basketball player. That's just a really good athlete. And so you have his skills, and then also Daniel Highshaw, who is more of your straight line, run up the gut, truck a guy over type of contact running back. So you have all these different guys that can do different things, and that allows you to put guys in the best situation for what they can do into formations that is going to, or or certain play calls that are going to go right up their alley for what's going to maximize their abilities. And also, you're using their abilities to maximize your specific play call into what you're doing. But Pesek Hickson is another guy that you could really see taking off this year just because of the fact that He did have some of that experience last year, some really good experience toward the end of the season. And athletically, he's a guy that seems to jump off the charts every time. And then Highshaw, the other guy, 5'10", 220 pounds. Like I said, he's kind of a hammer 
and that he can just pound away on these short yarded situations. Maybe he's a guy that you use in, in goal line. Maybe he's the guy that you do use in the third and twos when you need a couple yards and need a guy to move the sticks forward. He had a couple really good games. Five carries for 51 against Oklahoma State. Ten carries for 73 against Oklahoma. And 22 carries for 87 against Texas Tech. And you really look at every player. I mean, with the exception of Velton Gardner. Like, Gardner is probably your best bet if you're going to say, hey, we're going to split out this running back wide. We're going to put him in the slot on this play. Like Velton Gardner, who knows? Maybe he'll get some receiver snaps as well. And Devin Neal seems to be a pretty good pass catcher as well, so maybe he would do that. But with Highshaw, Hickson, Pesic Hickson, excuse me, and Neal specifically, those are all guys, too, that you also look at and say any of those guys could be workhorses if you need to. Again, with Highshaw, the 22 carries that one game. Pesic Hickson, the 22 carries in the game that he had 100 yards. Devin Neal, I remember there was a game, and I think it was against Free State in 2019, might have been 2018, Devin Neal had like, it was like 35 carries, another like five catches for the offense, it was insane, he was a workhorse, and that's what he can do, and because you have the four guys, you're not going to want to do that, you're not going to need to do that, but should that situation arise, you feel comfortable that you have really from those three, the ability to do that. With Velton Gardner, you're more so probably looking at a max of 12 to 15 carries in a game, but you do get the added versatility of being able to put him as a receiver because of his kind of versatility and multiplicity in an offense that wants to do just that. So overall, those four guys are the ones that I'm keeping an eye on. Those four guys, I think, all could have a significant impact on this season. You could tell me any of those four guys ended up rushing for 1,000 yards this year or any of those four ended up leading the team in rushing touchdowns. But I think it's it's more of the sum of the parts, because when you do have four talented guys that all do different things, right? Like with Puka Williams and Felton Gardner, you're kind of doing the same things, except in theory, Puka does them better. Although Puka Williams, when he was on the field, it was such a key for the defense that they were just like, hey, Puka's on the field. We're going to put like eight, nine in the box, like try to figure us out. But you don't really have that this year. You don't really have the situation of, well, I mean, they do the same thing. This guy's just better. It just gives you a bunch of different options of what you can do. And I think for an offense with Andy Kotelnicki and Lance Leipold, that they want to take pride in having different options and being multiple on offense, this is exactly the running back room that they're looking for. Maybe there's not a Jarrett Patterson in there, at least right away. Devin Neal develops into that guy, a guy who can run for – you know, 1,500 yards in a season, then that's great. I'm not expecting it right away in year one, but you should be able to get significant contribution from the running back room as you did last year, as you have in years past, where you haven't even been the worst in the Big 12. And now it looks like it's a deep room. It's a talented room. Could be a pretty successful one as well if they can all stay healthy. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk. I'm Derek Johnson. Kevin Flaherty of 24-7 Sports is going to join us on the other side with all going on in the college landscape, this new alliance between the ACC, Big Ten, and Pac-12, along with the audio that we played earlier from Dave Wanstead. Let's talk about it next with Kevin. About 15 till 5, this is Rock Chalk Sports Talk. I'm Derek Johnson on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. We'll let you listen in to the rest of the Lance Leipold audio coming up at the top of the 5 o'clock hour. Kevin Flaherty of 24-7 Sports, joins us now on RCST. The alliance of the ACC, Pac-12, and Big Ten officially announced today, even though nothing 
was officially signed. What are your thoughts on what is being put together by these three conferences? Is it anything more than just basically a voting block against the SEC? You know, I, I really don't think so, Derek. And, you know, I wound up one class away from uh, from getting a classics minor in there with uh, with my journalism degree. And, and I remember in the Iliad, you know, Achilles says something like, you know, there can be no covenants between men and lions. And when it comes to realignment, everybody's a predator. And, and I don't mean that in a negative way. I'm not trying to cast, you know, doubt or, or you know, blame certain people for the way that, that things are going. The Big 12 thrived by realignment and adding, you know, four schools to the original Big 8. What I am saying is that when it comes to the ability to make each conference better, I really don't think that there's any sort of alignment or covenant or pact or alliance, if you will, that that is going to stop somebody from making an upgrade or, or from acting in their own interests. And I think that when you look across the college sports landscape, and, and they had some interesting things to say, today about how, you know, hey, we hope the Big 12 gets stronger, so on and so forth. Let's let's be real about this. <laughs> if the Big 12 were to go out and add Ohio State and Michigan and USC and UCLA, these other conferences would not be for the Big 12 getting significantly stronger. No, not at all. And by the way, I, I was not expecting this interview to start off with a reference of the Iliad, but here we are. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I, I made the comparison earlier that it's almost like if, you know, you had your arms and legs chopped off and instead of a friend or, or whoever, an acquaintance, I guess, in this case with, with the Big Ten and the ACC and Pac-12 being like, hey, I'll drive you to the hospital. You're in serious pain. Like, let me help you. It's like, man, I, I can't take you to the hospital, but but I'm rooting for you. I hope you make it there. You know, it, it's kind of funny. It, it's it's kind of like going to school a little bit where, you know, maybe there's a bigger bully that picks on you, and so you get a couple other kids to walk with you in the thoughts that, hey, if we have a group, maybe we won't get picked on. <laughs> and yet at the same time, if that kid comes over and, and starts bullying somebody, there's a pretty decent chance that the other two smaller kids are, are kind of going to back away and let whatever is going to happen happen. I do think it's good that, you know, they're building those relationships. I think it's good for college football that they're going to schedule between the conferences because I, I think that's a good deal when we have these Power Five conference games. You know, one of the non-conference games I'm really excited about for, for no real tangible reason, I don't think, it is Kansas State opening against Stanford at Jerry World. And so – when you look at stuff like that, I think there are probably KU fans who are interested in seeing KU against Duke. And so when you have sort of this agreement that, hey, we're going to schedule amongst each other, you know, it, they said in basketball, you know, there would potentially be some midseason matchups in there as well. I think all that's all well and good. I think where push comes to shove and where things get really interesting is, if the Big Ten has a chance to improve its conference and improve its own standing, and if the ACC has a chance to add Notre Dame or, or whoever else, 
is it really going to be a situation where they're going to check with their other allies on this and they're going to say, hey, wait a minute, I just need to run this by the group to make sure this is okay. <laughs> no, I, I don't see that happening. No, definitely not. So as far as what this means, this alliance, what does it mean for the Big 12 and what does it mean for KU? For KU, I'm not sure it changes much. I think Kansas has to go out there like so many other schools in the Big 12 right now. I guess the seven other schools in the Big 12, they have to go out there and do what's best for Kansas. And that's not listening to some other conference say, hey, we'd really like the Big 12 to do this. Because it sounds all, all well and good. Hey, add Houston, add UCF, add this, add that, and and you'll have a conference that's, that's strong again. I think that most of the people who have looked at this, and there have been quite a few, show that the Big 12 is not going to receive the kind of money that it was before if you add in some of some of those schools. And so you're going to be taking a dip. Now, if you look at KU's case specifically, if Kansas could go to the Pac-12 or the Big Ten or the ACC and have its TV check actually increase from where it is right now as opposed to taking a hit for adding these other schools just to stay in the Big 12, that's why Kansas needs to make its own decision as opposed to sitting here and thinking about the other schools in the Big 12. And quite frankly, that's why other schools in the Big 12 should be looking around to see if they could hop into one of the other power conferences as well. Is the fact that they could come out in a better situation than they're at right now. But more than that, they could put themselves in a better situation than what the Big 12 would look like you know, four or five years down the road. And so where does where does the Big 12 go from? Like, is it just telling of what the future plan is based on what the Big 12 does? Because I would imagine if you're adding teams, that means everybody's getting a smaller slice of the pie over these next couple years under the current media deal. So that would basically be you saying, well, we are going to take a short-term loss to get a long-term gain for more just sustainability in the long term, whereas if we don't add anybody, that's basically signaling, no, we're just in it for the near term right now where we can coup as much money as possible before we have to leave in 2025. Is that just kind of the, the way to tell what's going to happen from here? Sure, and, and there are some schools in the Big 12 that, quite frankly, are looking down the barrel of a gun where on one end, on the, you know, the business end, if you will, you know, you're looking at, the possibility of not being in any Power 5 conference. And so for schools like that that aren't going to get that interest from Power 5 schools that really don't have that ability, keeping the Big 12 solvent is a better option to them than going to the AAC or the Mountain West or, or somewhere like that. I think that where you get in trouble is not every Big 12 school is on the same footing. And so if you interviewed all eight Big 12 schools, and you had to had them fill out one of those surveys where, you know, you say strongly agree, strongly disagree, somewhat agree, whatever, you're going to get different levels of how much it makes sense for that school to stay in the Big 12. And quite frankly, Derek, for a school like Kansas, I don't think that it makes the most sense given that Kansas can potentially get a power conference spot elsewhere and put itself 
you know, even a step forward from where it was at heading into this year, as opposed to taking a step back, you know, to be solid with the rest of the other Big 12 schools. Because let's be honest, Kansas doesn't owe K-State anything, just like Oklahoma didn't owe Oklahoma State anything and on down the road. And so if there are certain schools in the Big 12 that, that may get left out, that can't be a part of Kansas's thinking when it starts to negotiate or, or really look for itself if that becomes what Kansas really does want to do. Well, if we're taking one Dave Wanstead for <laughs> for worth here, then Kansas and Kansas State both going to be okay. K-State to the Pac-12, KU to the Big Ten. Uh, do you put any value in what Dave Wanstead said on uh, – I think it was 670 the score in Chicago. I, I put tremendous content value <laughs> uh, on what Dave Wanstead said and, and tremendous you know, discussion and, and internet needle-moving value on what Dave Wanstead said. And, and that doesn't mean that that, that can't happen. You know, we've talked on this very show, Derek, about how the Big Ten would seem to make the most sense for Kansas and, and how that would seem – to be a, a very viable plan A. And I think that if you talk to just about any Kansas State fan out there, they would love an opportunity to make sure that they stay at the power conference level and not drop down and whatever else. I don't know that the, the problem with reports like what Dave Wanstead put out and saying, hey, here's what I've heard, here's what my understanding is, is – Look back, and we've talked about this before, but look back at Oklahoma and Texas leaving the Big 12. It only came out basically because Texas A&M was mad that it was going to happen, and they had been talking for allegedly six months, and they were able to keep the whole thing quiet. It was under wraps, and people didn't know about it until it was basically here. And so I'm not saying we aren't going to hear rumors and innuendo and and all of that, I do think that even if you had a straight line to somebody like Travis Goff and you were talking to him on a daily basis, what you're going to hear might not be the same day-to-day. It won't be the same week-to-week, and it wouldn't be the same month-to-month. And so that's why I think you know it, it makes, for, makes for great articles for people to write about it. It makes for fun discussions and and all of those things, but let's be honest, a lot of this stuff is going to get done behind the scenes, and it's not really going to get done until the, the T's are crossed and the I's are dotted. There's not going to be the sort of thing where somebody can say, hey, I knew that KU was going to the Big Ten 100% sure you know, eight months before it happened. That's just not going to be the case. Yes, Kansas may wind up in the Big Ten, but the relationship and the way that those things get worked out, we aren't going to see that as openly as sort of what was declared there. Talking with Kevin Flaherty of 24-7 Sports here, I, I do want to get into some running back talk. I've been doing the running back previews so far today. Kansas now uh, switching up their scheme to the, the wide zone scheme. Is there any specific running back that you think is going to benefit the most or is that not really applicable? Is it more just about whoever the best running back is just going to adjust a little bit? You know, it's interesting. I think Belton Gardner has a chance to be a really good wide sound running back. And the reason why is I don't think he's especially shifty, Derek, but I think that he has pretty good top-end speed. And when you look at, 
at what makes a successful wide zone running back. Basically, you're starting to run to the outside, and you're looking inside, and the defense determines where you go. And so you're starting to go out, you put your foot in the ground, and you get downhill in a hurry. It's what's called a one-cut you know, for a running back. And I think Belton Gardner is somebody, when you look at the backs that they had at Buffalo and that they were successful with, Belton Gardner kind of fits in that mold. And so I think when you look at it from that perspective, you know, he's somebody that really stands out. Devin Neal is just such a talented running back, Derek. And I know you had a chance to see him at Lawrence High. So did I. And, you know, he was the top-ranked player in the in the state of Kansas. And he was the top-ranked player for a reason, because he's a running back who has, you know, the size to be in every down back. He has that kind of power, has great balance and vision, but he's also pretty explosive. And so if you were just going to run – you know, sort of what Kansas was running last year, you know, with more power sweep and, and the different things that they were doing, I think that you would say in a more varied offense, that would favor Devin Neal, whereas I think when you talk about wide zone, Belton Gardner's skill set fits that quite a bit. I, I also think, too, a guy who could be kind of interesting at it is Amari Pisek-Hickson, and, and I think you know, part of that is is he's a little bit of a long strider because of how tall he is, and so you definitely on certain run plays, you know, it's more difficult for him to build up see build up speed or, or kind of pick and choose. And and this offense isn't that. Like I said, it's see your cut, make your cut, go hard. And you saw Buffalo create a lot of big plays out of that. And, and Dalton Gardner is the type of guy that can turn, you know, a play that's blocked for for a 10-yard gain, he can turn it into a 40- or 50-yard gain. How good of a unit do you think this can be among teams in the Big 12? Because we talk about, you know, can the quarterbacks just not be last? Can the offensive line just not be last? But there have been some years recently where, you know, KU has maybe been 6th or 7th best in, in, like, rushing yards per attempt or this or that. So how good of a unit do you think this can be for KU and, and how much could that correlate with success? You know, I, I think it's probably a middle-tier group in, in the Big 12. There are some really talented running back groups in the Big 12 and really talented specific running backs. I mean, when you look at the production that they have at Oklahoma, you look at Bijan Robinson, you know, who is just explosive as all everything at Texas last year, ran for over, you know, 700 yards and didn't even have 100 carries. You look at Zach Evans, who is a former five-star recruit at TCU. And so you've got a lot of those groups across the conference. But when you start to look at the groups and the depth in there, you know, Kansas actually has a pretty strong group. When you look at Belton Gardner, Pisa Kickson, and you look at Daniel Hyshaw, all three of those guys ran for at least 80 yards in a Big 12 game last year. And then you add in Devin Neal, who is a four-star prospect, and, and I think you know has a chance if he develops and comes along the right way, has a chance to be a potential NFL back. You know, you've got guys who you know have proven that hey, even if it's just for a game, I can go out and I can be your lead tailback, and you can put the ball in my hands. And you also have some upside possibility there. I, I think this is a pretty solid group. He is Kevin Flaherty. You can check out all his work. 247sports.com. Kevin, 
Thank you for the time as always, and talk to you next week when uh, we're actually in game week. We're almost back to football season. Well, thanks for the chance to quote the Iliad, and uh, good talking <laughs> to you as always, Derek. That is Kevin Flaherty, 24-7 Sports. Yeah, I, I don't think we'd have any other guest quote the Iliad, so unique stuff there, as always, from Kevin. This is Rock Chuck Sports Talk. I'm Derek Johnson on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN, depend on it.